And here I appeal to the um, authority of the singer-songwriter Joni Mitchell mm -hmm. and a line in her song which says, uh, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. And the um, thought here, I think, is, is very deep philosophical question that if you want to appreciate something in your life, try to think how your life would be without it. And so if you're complaining about the state, first thing to do is to think, well, how would human beings be without a state? Hello, my geeselings. It's Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 82. And this episode is with Jonathan Wolf, who is Alfred Landecker, Professor of Values and Public Policy at the University of Oxford. And Jonathan works in political philosophy, numerous areas of political philosophy. So some, some topics he's researched include equality and poverty, and he's worked in a number of applied areas as well, some of which we get into in the course of the conversation. One thing that was really cool for me at this moment in my life about talking with Jonathan was just how great a speaker he is. So I'm thinking so much more now about public communication now that I'm doing it. And even before we talked, like the, the night or so before, I looked up some of his lectures on YouTube and was amazed or maybe not amazed, but super impressed by the way that he commanded the room. And I got to ask him a little bit about that afterward. I now realize I, I am in desperate need of a, a British accent, but unfortunately the world at this point, or at least the, the few thousand geeselings of you out there know that I don't have one. So it's too late to adopt it. Anyway, in this episode, Jonathan and I, we first talk about what political philosophy is, because I haven't spoken any spoken to anyone about it yet on the show. And then we get into some modern historical perspectives on the state. So we start with Hobbes and the state of nature, and then we talk about Locke, Rousseau, Mill, Marx, and Rawls. And in many ways, this reminds me of my first conversation with Steve Darwall, episode 49, The History of Modern Ethics. This podcast might have been called The History of Modern Political Philosophy. But after we go into these things, we talk about some of Jonathan's applied work in COVID policy and gambling. And then we talk about the writing he's currently doing with Abner de Chalit on cities and equality. So some of Jonathan's prior books include Disadvantage and Introduction to Political Philosophy, which I read in, in preparation for this conversation and highly recommend it. It's about to be in its fourth edition, and it's a great book, and also Why Read Marx Today. And you can check out or keep up with Jonathan's work on his website at Jonathan Wolf. That's with two Fs. Dot WordPress. Com. The, the the link is also going to be in the description. I should also mention, as usual, that your reviews, comments, likes, subscribes, all those things are are very helpful. And you should follow me on Twitter and Instagram and those places. And also check out Robinson Eats. Yesterday I had a. 1.5 quart container of Reese's chocolate ice cream, which was way too chocolatey and 
not peanut buttery enough, though there were some really good chunks of peanut butter cups in it, in case you were wondering. And now, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jonathan as much as I enjoyed having it with him. As I mentioned to you a minute ago, this is the first time I've spoken with anyone on the show about political philosophy. So it seems quite more than worthwhile to go over some of the basics before we delve more deeply into your work. But first, how was it that you came to study political philosophy? Did it start as an interest in history or economics or political science, or did you just go straight into it? Hmm. Um, well, I, I suppose I came from a family uh, where we talked about politics at home. My mother in particular was interested in, in politics. Um, I didn't go to university immediately after leaving school. I, I, uh, at the age of 18, I went and worked in an office. I worked as a legal clerk in an insurance company for two or three years, three years. And they uh, sent me off to do some law training uh, to take some associate exams. And I think w one of the things that got me in, into philosophy, and this was something related to things I'd thought about before, was at, at a certain point, um, my lecturer uh, said that whenever there is a right, there is a correlating duty. There must always be a duty if there's a right. I thought for that, about that for a moment. I said, is that really true? Um, now, could there be rights without duties? Obviously, there are duties without rights and moral duties we have to each other to keep our promises, maybe to be kind. Um, but we, we don't have, no one has a right that I'm kind to them. So my lecturer, who was a very nice man, said, look, um, if you're interested in that question, uh, you should sign up for philosophy, not law. And so I took that as a very flattering thing. And so I thought, okay, I must be a philosopher then. Great. Uh, so so I went off um, to do philosophy and I managed to get a place at University College London, UCL. And initially I wasn't going to study political philosophy because I, I thought it was the sort of thing you could do in your own time. And um, we there were it was not like an American system where you take many, many, courses, many choices. At that time, um, most of the curriculum was required and we could only take two options. So I decided I was going to take, I think, um, philosophy of language and aesthetics or maybe philosophy of science, not political philosophy. But I soon realized that um, I didn't really understand most of what was going on in philosophy of language and aesthetics was rather disappointing for me. And at UCL at that time, there was a philosopher, Jerry Cohen, G.A. Cohen, who was already, um, had, a, had just published his book on Marxism, Karl Marx's Theory of History of Defense. And he was teaching political philosophy and a very inspiring teacher. And there were uh, posters on his wall. Um, he'd, I think, just given a talk at Yale and Yale had announced him as, um, the world's leading exponent of historical materialism. And he had that poster on his wall. So I thought that um, if I'm going to be at university and there's someone who's the world leading exponent of anything, I ought to study with that person. He was also very engaging, very, very amusing. 
person. Mm -hmm. So it was really um, partly my background, partly the opportunity to study with someone like Jerry that made me uh, move towards political philosophy. And when I was there, you know, I realized it was the right thing for me to do. And, and so I worked as an undergraduate on a number of things, but political philosophy was my main interest. And then I carried on as a graduate student and stuck with it uh, since then. Well, I like that anecdote in particular about law, which actually leads into what I wanted to ask you about next. But I've I've lately had a couple of conversations on the show about one, what science is, and two, about what philosophy is. And each time it's been quite difficult to pin down an answer. And I'm wondering, do you have a way, a simple way of explaining just what political philosophy is? In particular, the reason that this, I think, relates to uh, law is, in particular, I'm curious about what it is that distinguishes your work as a political philosopher from what someone in a political science or a political theory department or history, or as you've already pointed out, there's a difference between the way a philosopher and a lawyer looks at these sorts of things. Okay. Well, so I'm, I, I think the older I get, the less interested I am in policing boundaries because I, mm -hmm. I think a lot of harm has come from people thinking they should only be doing one thing and not something else. And so that stops them reading useful literature, talking to different people. So, for example, um, I, I read increasingly um, social science and parts of history that I think is very philosophical. And in, in some cases, people in social policy are ahead of political philosophers on the same questions, the same philosoph philosophical questions. But um, the view of philosophy I take, the general view of philosophy I take, is um, that philosophy always starts, it always doesn't necessarily stay, but it starts with um, a situation, a dilemma, where common sense pulls us in more than one direction. And so we're thinking about something, um, you know, probably the, the first philosophical question that probably occurred to me, probably occurred to most people is about perception. And we, we raise this question, um, how do I know that people see the same color as me when I see red? Um, you know, because if they saw green when I saw red, you know, they would call it, Actually, I've forgotten how I started this now, but, it, but they would give the same name to a different color and we wouldn't know. And then you can try and work out whether you would know or not. And you think on, from point of view, of one idea of common sense would be that there's really no question here. Everyone sees colors the same way and, may, and we can detect people. If they've got some sort of abnormality with their vision, it's quite easy to detect. On the other hand, actually, how do you know what's in another person's mind? how other people perceive. So we start with a problem, a puzzle. And what makes it a philosophical puzzle is we don't have an easy method of solving it. That most questions in science, okay, um, maybe we, we can't come to a solution because we're not advanced enough in our method, but we can start to think about a type of methodology that would solve it, ob observation, measurement, some sort of experiment. There are ways in which we think we can come to a conclusion. But in philosophy, normally we're stuck. So what about political philosophy? What's distinctive about political philosophy? 
Well, I think this idea of common sense coming in into conflict um, is even more clear in political philosophy than in other parts of, of philosophy. But political philosophy concerns questions about how we organize ourselves as a society. So I would first of all want to distinguish political philosophy from moral philosophy. So moral philosophy is about mostly about individual content, uh, conduct. So moral philosophy is what I should do, how, maybe how I should feel on, on some views, but it's about me and, and my obligations. Political philosophy doesn't ignore the individual, but its main question is what we should do collectively as a society. Um, if we have a state or a government, which we all do now, what should that state or government do for the sake of individuals, obviously, or maybe not so obviously. So in, there is a reference to individuals, but the question is, what should the state do? And we find very quickly we're drawn into dilemmas in political philosophy of a sort people have in ordinary conversation. So, for example, it's very common, one of the most common intuitions is that uh, you know, people who work harder should earn more. So if you talk to anyone, pretty much that that is a common intuition. But then if you say, well, what about someone who's not capable of working hard? Perhaps um, to make it topical, you know, someone suffering from long COVID and they can only work three hours a day. Does that mean they should get less? I think many people would be pulled in two directions on that. Because on the one hand, they want to be sympathetic. On the other hand, do they really believe it? So um, if, if you imagine you, you know, there's one promotion going in the office, someone has been working really hard and putting the hours, someone has been struggling because they've been ill, who do they think the promotion should go to? So on the one hand, they will almost instinctively think it's the person who's put in the hours. On the other hand, they'll know that's incredibly unfair if the other person couldn't. So we have those sorts of questions that come up uh, in political philosophy around desert is, is one thing. But uh, I wrote a book called An Introduction to Political Philosophy, and I began by repeating a joke that I'd been given by someone who didn't think much of political philosophy, who said there are only two questions in political philosophy, uh, who gets what and who says. So one is about the distribution of resources, money, income, wealth, other types of resources in society. And the other is about um, political power. I mean, I currently teach on a course in the School of Public Policy, and the political philosophy course I teach on was set up before I, I joined. No, actually, we organize it around four questions. Um, so we have those two, uh, who gets what and who says. But another is, what is the point of government? So, so what should governments be doing? And another is, what are the limits to government? So I'd now say, if I, I, I keep producing new editions of this book. If I was starting, well, I, and I say You're the same four, thing. You're on four, right? Four. Just, got, just finished the four. And yeah, it, so I like the joke, and I don't want to change it. I don't want to change things unnecessarily. But if I was starting again, I'd say the, the four questions. So the first question is, what do we think governments should be doing? Should they be trying to maximize the happiness of the population? Should they be promoting the good? Should they be trying to seek national glory? Should they be trying to expand the borders? Should they be trying to protect the borders? Now, what are the things that governments should be doing? Second set of questions is about what are the limits? So this is about our rights and liberties. 
uh, what protections should we have from governments? What should governments not be allowed to do? Then the third question, who gets what? So this is distributive justice, where I've spent much of my attention and philosophy thinking about questions of equality and justice and distribution. And then finally, questions about political power. Should we have democracy? What are the alternatives to democracy? What are the values? So in all of these areas, I would say um, they're philosophical questions because they're dilemmas. And what makes them philosophical dilemmas is, to put it frankly, we don't know how to answer them. We don't have mm -hmm. any simple idea. So all we can do is talk and argue and make distinctions and hope we can come to a view. But we have no methodology. So I'll stop talking about this in a second. But this, oh, this, comes, this comes back to one of the things I often say about the difference between philosophy and sciences. I'm sure you've heard it before. The listeners will have heard it before. But once upon a time, everything was philosophy. There was no distinction between philosophy and anything else. So the question is not is really not is what is philosophy, but what are the other things? Um, so why did other subjects leave philosophy? And my uh, view, and this is hardly an original view at all, um, is that subjects leave philosophy when there becomes an agreed methodology for trying to yeah. solve their questions. Mm -hmm. And so on this view, it doesn't make philosophy sound that fantastic in a way, because it's that bit of intellectual life left where we don't have a methodology or an agreed methodology. And people come up with their methodologies. And I've written a lot about methodology, but we don't have an agreed methodology for solving uh, problems. So that makes it sound very deep, of course, because we don't have a way of, we have these problems, but it also makes it sound very frustrating. No, I I really appreciate that spin that you put, put on the end there. A, a professor I have here at Stanford, Nadim Hussein, mm -hmm. has told me that everything starts as philosophy and then when it gets easy, then it goes <laughs> to the other disciplines, uh, which is maybe a less charitable and more... Uh, yeah philosophy lover's way of putting it. But going back to the second part of my question, and I think you just pointed the way to answering it, uh, granted that you mentioned you don't like uh, pointing to boundaries at this point in your career, but philosophy and political philosophy as well begins with the adjudication of these dilemmas that stem from intuitions tugging in different ways and the other disciplines arise when we have sort of a methodology for dealing with certain mm -hmm. questions. And I'm wondering what the methodology is then in political science or political theory that might at least, that might distinguish it from political philosophy, yes. them from political philosophy. So, I mean, th that is you know, a really tough question. So, uh, what is the difference between political philosophy done in philosophy departments and political philosophy done in political science or government departments? Because you know, very often, you know, the same books are on the reading list, same questions are asked. Um, so, so one view, uh, which sometimes I'm sympathetic to, is that they're just the same thing done in different departments. But if you look more carefully, um, they're, they're taught, they do seem to be taught in different ways. So in philosophy departments, if you're taking an introduction to political philosophy in a philosophy department, at least in my experience, um, you wouldn't be expected to read comprehensively. That The instructor would probably pick one or two classic texts. And you spend quite a lot of time going through the arguments, 
um, paying close attention to not just the arguments themselves, how they're formulated, but trying to come to a view about whether you think the arguments are right or wrong or the positions can be criticized. In political science departments, in my experience, um, there tends to be much, much more reading to do, much faster. So you might read um, 10 classic books, maybe even 20 books, spend one week on each of them. And the idea in a political theory department will be more to understand the main lines of the thinkers, understand their historical context, which actually happens much less in philosophy. So you know, why is it people were making that argument at that time? It's something we almost never ask in philosophy. We just look at the argument. We don't look at the context. I know things are changing to some degree. And so um, political science will tend to look more at um, patterns, traditions, influences, and big picture theories, whereas political philosophy will look at less of that and look much more about you know, do the arguments work? Is this a good argument? Is this a bad argument? Can you come up with a counterexample to it? Now, there are going to be people who teach in political theory departments who say, that's exactly what I do. There isn't a distinction there. Or I do both. I give the big picture, I give the context, and I give the arguments. And that would be fantastic. The question is whether there's time to do that comprehensively. So I tend to think um, the in political theory, you're, you're more likely to want, to want to classify things into different theories. So who are the socialists? Who are the liberals? Who are the conservatives? Um, whereas in political philosophy, you're more likely to be less interested in those isms and, and classification, but just look at the text and its own merits and to see you know, whether the arguments work or not. Hmm. Well, that was exactly the introduction I was hoping for. So thank you. And my goal is to move towards some of your current work on contemporary cities, where you've even done some empirical research. So maybe you are a social scientist <laughs> as well. But I think it would be nice to build up toward this by discussing some more historical context about the state and its purpose. And naturally, I think the best place to start might be with humankind before the state. And Hobbes famously described man's life before the state as nasty, brutish, and short. But beyond this description, what was his philosophical treatment of the state of nature? And I know that, that that's, a, that's a huge question that could take yeah. weeks to unfold. Yeah. Okay. So the state of nature has played a very important role in political philosophy, in particularly in Hobbes and in Locke. Yeah. Um, maybe less so now. Uh, we, we have other ways of approaching questions. But the question about the state of nature um, can be a hypothetical question or it can be a historical question. So um, the, the way you posed it, you know, the state came into existence once upon a time, there, there was no state. And so it's, the state was sort of invented from a state of nature. It's not completely clear that um, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau really thought there ever was a state of nature 
or whether, whether there was a time before the state or political organization. Rather, um, the, the way I'd like to think of this is a question about what would happen if there wasn't a state. So what, how would human beings behave if there was no state? And then there's a question of why would you even ask that? And if we've got a state, why, why is it interesting or important to know how we'd behave without it? And here I appeal to the um, authority of the singer-songwriter Joni Mitchell mm. and a line in her song which says, uh, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. And the um, thought here, I think, is, is very deep philosophical question that if you want to appreciate something in your life, try to think how your life would be without it. And so if you're complaining about the state, first thing to do is to think, well, how would human beings be without a state? And Hobbes, um, as you rightly pointed out, thought the state of nature would be a state of brutality, in fact, a state of war, he says. Um, life in the state of nature would be, I can never be sure I'm going to get the words in the right order, uh, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, I th think it is. I think that's right. <laughs> um, and uh, why was that? Well, he thought that human beings were driven by a sort of motivation of what he called felicity, which is the desire to satisfy our future desires. And for that, we need power. And in the state of nature, that leads us into competition for scarce resources. And so, um, yeah, Hobbes's position is, is more subtle than it's often portrayed at because you know, the state of nature is a state of war for him and human beings are at war with each other. And he, he says that there are three sources of war. Um, one is competition, that if two people want the same thing, then they'll be, they'll need to fight for it. Uh, second is what he calls diffidence, which is a type of preemptive assault. If you think people are going to come for your goods, better to take them out first. And then third is reputation. And the idea is that if you're rep if you've got a reputation for being strong, people won't attack you. And so um, you can think of this type of reasoning as applying you know pretty much to every prison drama that we see that yeah. um that you know, hobbes is really depicting describing you know survival tactics under extreme circumstances that you will uh, attack for gain attack for preemptive defense and attack for reputation and that's not a bad account of i have no idea what prisons really are like but that's what prisons are depicted at in public media um, would human beings be like that? Uh, well, maybe they would. Why would they be? Is it because they're so selfish? Well, Hobbes' own view, I think, is that human beings are not as selfish as people think Hobbes thought they were. I think rather he, he thinks people would like to get on with each other if they could. The trouble is that you have no assurance that other people are going to behave. So it's not that you know that other people are out to attack you. It's rather you don't know who it is that might be a threat to you. And so this puts you on suspicion. 
And um, I think one of the most powerful things Hobbes says is that if you think human beings are nicer than that, or at least um, more respectful to each other, think about how you behave yourself. So even in a society where there's police, prisons, army, force, uh, sovereignty, um, you lock your doors when you leave your house, you bolt your windows. And he says, Hobbes even says, um, you lock your drawers and chests against your servants. Well, okay, that may be a bit anachronistic, I'm not sure. Many of us have servants, but th this idea, the whole idea of security, the whole industry of buying locks, um, assumes that other people are going to be a threat to your property. So Hobbes thinks in the state of nature, we have no assurance that other people will behave well, and that turns it into the um, state of war. What the state does is provide assurance that um, if someone behaves in a way that is harmful to others, they will be punished, or at least there's a chance they'll be punished. And so that gives us much more freedom to live our lives. So the whole point of the state for Hobbes is to give us the security in order to build flourishing lives. That in the state of nature, we wouldn't have the time or leisure or security to do the things that are valuable for us. And so we need the state and the protection of the state to do that. Now, um, it's typical to contrast Hobbes and Locke here. And um, Locke thought that there was a moral law that operated in the state of nature. Um, Locke says the state of nature is a state of liberty, not of license. That is, we are morally responsible towards each other. And he even thinks there is a right of punishment in the state of nature, that if someone disobeys the moral law, others have the executive power of the law of nature. But Locke is in a bit of a um, difficult situation. Because on the one hand, he wants to say Hobbes has exaggerated how bad the state of nature is. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, um, there's no doubt we left it, that, um, that we're not in the state of nature anymore. We created the state. And so um, Locke has to tread this sort of difficult path of trying to say to Hobbes, no, the state of nature isn't that bad. But to say to other, to say to potential anarchists, actually, the state of nature is bad enough that we need to leave it. We need to do something else. So Locke's argument, he, he really fudges this, I think, um, because what he says is that there's a sort of this um, rather initial state of innocence when we don't need a state and we can live in the state of nature. But as soon as human beings start acquiring property and trying to acquire more and more, um, okay, initially there's a limit to how much we allow to acquire because if we take more than we can use fruitfully, um, then it should revert back to the common store, he says. But once money is invented, we can use and use and use more and more land and exchange what we produce for money, and people will start building up money. So um, Locke eventually has to argue that it's the invention of money that puts us in competition with each other and turns the state of nature into something closer to Hobbes's state, for which we need uh, Hobbes' state of nature, for which we need a state as a remedy. But the big difference between Hobbes and Locke is the type of state they think is justified. So Hobbes depicts the state of nature as so bad that 
um, anything is an improvement. So Hobbes's view is that um, yeah, any state is better than none. And in fact, the best state for us is an absolute sovereign who will have absolute power. And that the we Leviathan. should all the Leviathan, exactly. So we should all give up our liberty to the Leviathan, who will have absolute power and will be able, as a result, to um, enforce the law, the law of nature, and we will be able to live good lives within the law of nature under under that authority. Locke's view is that um, the contract is much more conditional. Um, so one of the interesting things about Hobbes's contract is that although we make a contract with each other, the sovereign, I'm going to say himself, because it would only be a himself from Hobbes's point of view, uh, the sovereign himself does not make any promises. The sovereign isn't party to that contract. We make a contract to appoint a sovereign. And so there's no way the sovereign can break the contract. If the sovereign fails to keep order, then the sovereign's lost their trust and perhaps uh, should be replaced. But there's nothing the sovereign can actually do that is a violation of the social contract. For Locke, um, the social contract's really in two forms. First of all, we make an agreement to come together as a community. And then the community makes an agreement with the sovereign, with, with, with the leader, with the government. And we will put conditions on that. So that um, we create the state for our own protection. And so if the sovereign starts to do things that undermine the reasons why we created the sovereign in the first place, then the sovereign has gone beyond their legitimate powers. So for example, Locke was particularly interested in private property. And he was writing at a time when um, you know, the King of England tried to levy tax, confiscate property without the consent of the people. Now, for Hobbes, that would have been fine. The sovereign could do whatever they want. For Locke, that's not fine because the sovereign was set up to protect property, not to take it. And so the sovereign can only take the amount of property that is authorized by the people. And if the sovereign goes too far, then rebellion can be legitimate, as Locke thought was happening in, in his own time. So Locke was actually revolutionary. We would tend to think of him now as a very bourgeois, conservative defender of, of property, but that was a revolutionary position at the time he was putting it forward. What I find most striking about all of this in the context of our more meta discussion about what political philosophy is, is how integral speculation about psychology is to Hobbes's theory, yeah. uh, which, I mean, re reminds me of what you said about maybe the futility or unimportance of drawing boundary. And then moral law in Locke is so important. And you also distinguished uh, moral philosophy from political philosophy, where he also talks about or references the invention of money. So maybe he's partially an economist. So it really does all blend together. Well, I agree. I mean, so Hobbes wrote three books, um, De Corpore. Well, he, he wrote many books, but, but there was a sequence of three. De Corpore, which is about matter. Um, and I'm going to forget the other titles, but, but one was effectively about physics. Um, the second one was about psychology, 
uh, De Hom, I think, and then De Kiwe about the government. So this was before he wrote Leviathan. He wrote those three books. So he thought that to do political philosophy, you start with physics. You don't start with mm. just the questions we've had. We, you, need to, you need to understand matter. You need to understand matter and how it moves so you can understand psychology because he was a reductionist wow. about human psychology. So he thought ultimately the movement of the brain, you know, to understand the movement of the brain, you have to understand the movement of, of atoms and how, how they move. And only when you've understood psychology, and of course you need physics to understand psychology, only then can you really begin to understand politics. And Leviathan um, begins with definitions about matter and about psychology. And so we move very quickly. We, we just get a tiny little bit of physics, a bit more psychology, and then into political philosophy. And if you look at books from that era, and, and later on, and so right into the 19th century, it was very common for political philosophers to tell you, just lecture you for 20 pages about psychology before they got going. And it normally tended to be a very um, reductive, self-interested psychology that they thought we all had. So it's all about the human beings, or Jeremy Bentham, human beings trying to maximize pleasure and avoid pain. And that's the type of view you get. But people felt it was part of their moral responsibility as a writer to tell you I mean, even things about how perception works before they, they get going. And in the relation to economics, you know, um, there really was no distinction between economics and philosophy until probably the 19th century. So Adam Smith was as famous in his own time, probably more so as a philosopher, moral philosopher, the theory of moral sentiments rather than the wealth of nations. Um, mm -hmm. Go back further, you know, Leibniz was making fundamental discoveries in mathematics. He invented, was one of the inventors of calculus, um, had theories about the civil service. So as a you know, real institutional theorist, um, so, you know, one thing, it's inevitable, but very, very sad uh, that has happened generation after generation is we get more and more specialized. And so it's actually quite hard now to think of many philosophers who've made a contribution in more than one area of philosophy. Whereas, you know, when I was a student, there were philosophers like um, Bernard Williams, who had written on... Descartes and on philosophy of mind and epistemology and metaphysics and moral philosophy and political philosophy. Um, Nozick notoriously moved from subject to subject. Uh, mm. I heard that he never taught the same class twice at Harvard and just picked whatever he wanted to work on in, in philosophy. I'm just not seeing that now, that um, everyone is a specialist in their own area. And um, if someone writes in both moral philosophy and political philosophy, that's considered quite a wide range now mm -hmm. yeah you you mentioned leibniz and leibniz the mathematician and i i know that hobbes also had some less successful endeavors in geometry well that is true that is true but um he so you're thinking of hobbes's claim that he'd worked out a proof how to square the circle mm -hmm. which um everyone at the time was telling him it was impossible and I suppose he was saying, no, you, you must be wrong because I've done it. So it can't be impossible. But the geometry was very important for Hobbes as it was, I think, for Spinoza and many other philosophers. Um, 
there's a story, I think this is in Aubrey's Brief Life Lives about Hobbes. And um, Hobbes supposedly was in his 40s when he was in a gentleman's library. And there was a book, a Euclid was open at a random page. And Hobbes looked at that page and supposedly said, by gad, that's impossible. Um, but he followed through the proof um, and he saw that what he thought was impossible followed by clear deductive steps from in, indubitable axioms. I mean, mm -hmm. the idea that someone could really have followed a proof in Euclid without knowing any of this, is, I think, is completely fanciful. I think you needed yeah. quite a lot of education yeah. to be able to do that. But anyway, the story is he did that. He did it. And he realized at that point that this was a methodology he wanted to follow. That is what Euclid had done, supposedly, is start with some self-evident axioms and by self-evident small steps of logic moves to very remarkable conclusions, which are therefore proven, at least relative to the axioms that no one is going to doubt. So Hobbes thought that he was the first person in moral and political philosophy to have understood how to do it. And he thought you'd do it just as Euclid did geometry. So you start with definitions. Um, so if you look at Leviathan, you know, Hobbes begins with definitions like you know, will is the last appetite in deliberation. So that is a definition of, of will. And there are dozens, maybe hundreds of these definitions. Um, and he's, he's trying to build up a picture. And he claims to be doing, he claims to be you know, the, the Euclid of moral and political philosophy, just as Spinoza was you know, the Euclid of metaphysics. And it's such a powerful idea that if you can start with these definitions and then show everything follows from them, then you've got a, at least a relative proof. And the trouble is, of course, Hobbes never really did those steps. And he confused, I think, logical and causal reasoning. And so he, he used a number of different uh, styles of argument, and, and so nothing was, was proven. But he did think that was the way in which you should be able to proceed. And, and you can see the attractiveness of this. You see a methodology that, that has paid off so spectacularly in geometry. I think if I, if I can be the geometer of the moral sciences, mm -hmm. I've got it all sorted out. No one can disagree with me. Mm -hmm. Now, just parenthetically, as a scholar of Hobbes, does his adoption of this methodology where ideally, I, I mean, in practice, you said it didn't go quite like this, everything is laid out explicitly. Does it, does his adoption of this methodology make it easier to figure out uh, flaws in his reasoning and where things went wrong and which, uh, which axioms should not have been adopted that were adopted? Well, it's never put forward in an axiomatic way. Um, okay. That it, it's done in a much more discursive way. So it, it's written as a work of prose, not a work of mathematics. And what he does, you know, he, you know, he leaves these, he defines um, some of these um, terms in ways which are, you know, they're very elegant, but they're quite controversial. And, um, you know, he quite often puts things in place so he can use them later on. So this, the one I chose, um, tell you the definition of will is the last appetite in del deliberation. Um, that turns up much later on. 
um, when he's discussing the question about uh, suppose the sovereign makes you agree at the point of a sword. So you, you want to disagree, the sovereign threatens your life, and you agree. Um, now, the obvious criticism is that you've done that under duress, and it's not valid. Um, well, Hobbes's answer is no, no, no. Um, will is the last act in deliberation, the last appetite in deliberation. Your last appetite in deliberation was to say yes to the sovereign, approval. So approval is your will. And so there's no room for saying some saying that you did something that was against your will, given his definition of will. Now, what that's going to make us do, I think, is say, ah, oh, well, your definitions aren't as self-evident as Euclid's are. Because you know, if that's the consequence of that definition, let's go back and get a, def a different definition mm -hmm. rather than saying that's that's the one. So I think in the places, there aren't that many places where there's an explicit connection between the definition and the argument uh, or the conclusions. And when you get them, you get this sort of dawning sense that, ah, that's why so that's why Hobbes adopted that slightly strange definition. Um, it was in order to derive this conclusion that's actually rather controversial. Mm -hmm. Well, moving on then to the last of the three thinkers who I think belong to this same lineage, I think is Rousseau. And Rousseau, if I'm correct, he thought that Hobbes and Locke neglected to factor in another psychological notion, uh, the human capacity for compassion in their views of the state and the state of nature. And how does this ultimately then alter his conception of government and what it should be or what it is? So Rousseau um, were, was very critical of, of Hobbes and, and Hobbes's assumptions. Um, uh, Rousseau partially takes the idea of the state of nature somewhat more literally than maybe Hobbes meant. So you know, Hobbes has this idea of people coming together in a state of nature to create a contract. Um, Rousseau says, well, in the state of nature, you wouldn't have a concept of a contract. So how would that, that even be possible? And so Rousseau claims that instead of going back to the state of nature and working out what people would have been like in the state of nature, what Hobbes and also Locke have done is take us civilized people and imagine what we would be like in a state of nature rather than what an actual state of nature would be. So is that a criticism or not? Well, if the state of nature was only hypothetical, you know, the Joni Mitchell argument, you don't know what you've got till it's gone, it would be perfectly legitimate to imagine what we would be like there, because that is the question. But Rousseau um, talks more as if he thinks, um, so Rousseau is a very ambiguous figure. He wrote more than one book, didn't say the same thing in a in book, <laughs> but, but in different books. So part, but part of Rousseau's position seems to have been there was once upon a time a historical state of nature. Although he also says it's sort of blasphemous to think there would have been because the evolution from there to now is longer than biblical time. And so it's blasphemous to think there, there could have been a state of nature, but then he carries on and does it uh, anyway. But the idea I think he has is that 
you know, the true, sa the noble savage, as has come to be called, is is someone who um, doesn't want to inflict harm or cruelty on others. And um, Rousseau points out that all animals have compassion for their own own species, their own kind. So he even talks about a horse galloping if it sees another horse on the floor will do its best to avoid stamping on the other horse that it will understand that it will be harming the other and and wants to avoid it and so Rousseau's view is that you know, we'll harm each other only when it well of course there are people with pathological tendencies but the normal human being will harm others only when there's no alternative to doing that to assure your own survival um, the general idea, I think, is that the state of nature was a much better situation than either Hobbes or Locke have envisaged it, so Rousseau thinks. And carrying on with the same logic, the better the state of nature, um, the more uh, tentative, in a way, I suppose, the justification of the state. That, that is, if the state of nature is terrible, then we can, as Hobbes thought, run to an absolute sovereign. If the state of nature is livable but not ideal, and we can see the advantages of the state, as in Locke, then yes, we might have the state, but we want to reserve some powers to make sure that it doesn't the life in the state doesn't end up worse than in the state of nature. Um, Rousseau's view is that we need the state in order to achieve a sort of higher level of freedom than we would get in the state of nature. And that means that there are very strong conditions on what type of state is justified for Rousseau, or at least what type of state is ultimately justified, that it needs to be a state that, of course, can assure security, but somehow it's got to be something that renders us as free as we were before, but also with a higher, some sort of higher level of freedom. So Rousseau's justified state is one which requires a much deeper form of democracy than Locke's state does. So um, although Locke is regarded as a democratic figure, um, he's less explicit than Rousseau about the need for everyone, every individual to be part of the political community. And so I, I think, again, for Rousseau, because the state of nature is not terrible, it has many advantages, we're only going to give up that freedom if we get something quite significant in exchange for it. Mm. Well, now that we're talking about freedom uh, more explicitly, and you mentioned that Rousseau's state is one that ideally gives us a greater degree of freedom than we would have in the state of nature. There are three more thinkers or philosophers, I don't know how they would have classified themselves, that I think would be, again, more than worth talking about before we get into cities. And one in particular that has to do with freedom is John Stuart Mill, and particularly his work on liberty, which I think I did read this as a teenager, but largely no offense uh, to you it was as a soporific um, to help with my insomnia though i actually think it was if i recall correctly it was actually a not a boring book 
Uh, but am I correct that this book in general was concerned with delimiting the power that the state should have over the individuals it governs? So if you want to read a book of Mills um, to help you with your sleep, I think On Liberty might be the last one. Yeah. To, uh, yeah. Maybe, I think maybe. it was the shortest, maybe. And maybe. It was was. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, so Mills in On Liberty is very concerned with uh, the limits of the state over the individual. That is absolutely right. And um, what he is most famous for is putting forward um, what's sometimes called the harm principle, sometimes the liberty principle, the harm, I think, is probably the more common name. And that says, no, the only justified reason the state has for interfering with your liberty is to prevent you harming or threatening harm to other people. And so the state cannot justifiably interfere with you for your own good. So it's very much an anti-paternalistic view and argues that, yeah, the, the state is the justification of the state broadly on that view is to stop people harming or threatening harm for each other and that uh, it, it can't tell you to do things for your own good. Now, what Mill really had in mind there was so highly moralistic, including religious um, legislation. So he was um, concerned that the church and tradition had too much power over people's individual lives. Um, for example, as a young man, uh, this is from one of the, the biography by Richard Reeves. Um, he was walking through a London park. John Stuart Mill was walking through a London park and saw um, an abandoned infant, a one-day-old infant, um, dead in the park. And what he realized is that um, this was obviously an unwanted baby. And the laws at that time around contraception meant that very few people were using contraception. It was probably illegal to do that. And so very, you know, within a few days, he got involved pamphleting um, on giving information booklets out of forms of birth control. And he was arrested and spent a night in the South for that. Oh, wow. So he, yeah. Um, so Why was a, that illegal? I mean, I, this is major ignorance on my part. Yeah. But Well, um, the, the role of the church uh, until probably the late 19th century, early 20th century has been very strong. And the um, linkage in many countries, particularly in uh, the United States, is probably an exception to this, certainly at the federal level, although um, there are many people who would like to have these laws and are introducing them now. Oh, um, yes. But, you know, the, the view of the church was that um, there was only one form of legitimate sexual intercourse, and that was between husband and wife for the sake of procreation. And any other form of uh, sex was a sin. And the law followed that, that line. Um, so I don't know the details of the law, but I, but I do know that um, Mill was arrested for handing out a 
um, a leaflet about birth control, and this was thought to be subversive. Um, you know, he was bailed, freed. I don't think he was ever charged. But this type of moralistic legislation, whereby the government felt it could intervene even in matters of people's sexual conduct, um, Mill thought was going far too far. And his view was that the government can only stop people doing things if they were going to harm others. Now, um, the trouble with that is that Mill didn't actually believe it um, because there are many things, for example, around public health that uh, we do think the government should intervene in our lives for our own good. Um, so On Liberty is quite a polemical book um, in that it has this sort of hidden agenda, really, of criticizing a very conservative, very religious form of state, now, rather than giving a general theory. So um, l l let me say one way in which this came up in work I did in, in public policy. So uh, the last 20 years or so, I got quite involved in some issues of public policy. And the first one I was involved with was on the regulation of laws around gambling in the UK. Hmm. So I was asked to sit on a in effect, a type of mini law commission. I'm very excited to do this. And um, I thought it'd be fascinating because I'd have to go and visit gambling establishments. Yeah. I'd never been in a casino in the UK. I'd been in a <laughs> casino in the States before then, but I'd never been in one in the UK. So I didn't know there they, were any, but I suppose it makes yeah. sense that there won't be. Uh, well, well, there are, but they tend to be, they're not like Las Vegas casinos. They're, they're hidden. At the time I was doing this, they weren't even allowed to have a sign outside saying casino. There was about a oh. hundred of them in the country. You had to be a member to go. So they're very secretive. And this was to stop people gambling um, because they were thought to be a bad thing on the whole. We didn't want to encourage gambling. And um, anyway, I was asked to sit on the, this committee to regulate gambling. And I thought, well, this sounds great fun. Um, but also, it's going to be quite easy to do this because you know, I've read John Stuart Mill, and John Stuart Mill says we can't interfere with the liberty of any adults apart from if they're harming others or threatening harm, and their own good is not a good enough reason. And then I thought about the laws we have about gambling around the world, and of course they don't fit Mill's harm principle. That is, the reasons why we have regulations on gambling is to stop people harming themselves, stop people forming it, falling into addiction, stop people becoming problem gamblers, spending all their money, and so on. So we're, we're very used to having laws to protect people from harming themselves, whereas all of that should be not allowed on, on Mill's um, harm principle. And just by chance, actually, when I was working on this, I came across a reference to an article that Mill had published in the medical journal, The Lancet, again, when he was very young. And he argue, argued against gambling on the grounds that it corrupts the person who's gambling. And so he, he thought we should have laws against gambling as a young man. Yet if you read On Liberty and Stay Awake uh, while you're doing that, um, <clears throat> you will see a principle that looks like it, you know, banning um gambling would be illegitimate because it interferes with people's liberty. So Mill starts off with this very strong principle about liberty. And then later on, as you go through to the end of the book, he's got a chapter that he calls um, Obvious Limitations. 
So um, he thinks there are certain things that uh, would be perfectly okay to ban uh, without him really explaining why. So one, you know, public indecency is one of the examples he uses that um, society can't put up with public indecency, although you know, who's being harmed by it in any real sense. But Mill is you know, famous for the liberty principle or the harm principle, and it sets us a, a good sort of benchmark of thinking that um, so I, I think the way I would say is it, it doesn't really give us a firm <coughs> justification, even though <coughs> every now and again, public figures or politicians will use it as if it's the last word. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think it's sort of the first word. That is, if things are put in place for the good of the citizen, the citizen's own good, if, if we have paternalistic legislation, we need a much higher level of justification for it. Um, so if you think of the sorts of things we have, we require people in cars to wear seat belts. Why is that? Well, to save their lives, not to save, not to stop them harming other people. Why is that justified? Well, because it's a very small imposition of their liberty. It's an insignificant in imposition on their liberty. That can do them a great deal of good. And so that seems justified. Um, but other things that are paternalistic, maybe the balance doesn't fall like that. Well, before we move on, uh, granted that you're Alfred Landecker, Professor of Values and Public Policy at the University of Oxford, maybe I should have asked some more questions about your work in public policy. But at the moment, are are there, I mean, the, the gambling story was interesting. Are there any others, uh, maybe one or so, just that might relate to some of the things we've already been talking about? Well, the most recent work I've done, uh, like many philosophers who've been involved in bioethics or global health in the past, has been around the pandemic. And mm -hmm. um, I've been working a little bit with the World Health Organization, WHO, and other philosophers um, trying to improve the, the quality of the moral arguments around pandemic and priority setting. So part of my... Um, standard defense of, I suppose, why there should be such a thing as a professor of values and public policy, why the two things go together, is that my view now that is that every element of public policy is ultimately a question of values one way or another. So the choice isn't, um, you know, do we bring philosophy in or not? Uh, the choice is, do we acknowledge philosophy is already there? And do no. we explicitly discuss it or do we sweep it under the carpet? So um, one way I discuss this with my students is to say that uh, a lot of policy schools, a lot of economists are very interested in cost-benefit analysis as if this is a type of neutral decision-making tool. You, know, you look at the costs, you look at the benefits, you measure them and you do that thing with the highest uh, value of benefits over costs. But just to think about those words, cost and benefits, I mean, they're already values in there. So someone has made a decision that certain things are going to count as costs, certain things are going to count as benefits. So we're already doing, or someone has done, moral philosophy before we get started. And yeah, is aggregation always the best thing to do? Should we look at distribution? Should we look at weighted distribution? There are yeah, a hundred ethical dilemmas in, in many policy questions. 
Now, of course, if you're just doing a small project and you're told to follow cost-benefit analysis, then now's not the time to have arguments about whether something really is a benefit or whether we should look at it some other way. But in building up these tools, you know, we, we need a strong injection of values. Let me just give you one more example. Sorry, to try not to take too long. But, but no, one, no, one of the, take your time. One of the pieces of work I did early on was on um, safety. And there's a really interesting question. This was for railway safety, which is thought, well, we, you know, we can always make things safer. You know, however things are, we, you know, we can make it safer. So we can make the railways much safer just by slowing down trains or having mm -hmm. maintenance done twice as often. Now, there's always a way. There's no such thing as having done everything. You can always do, do more. But it has a cost. And so... Now, there's a question, how do we work out when we've spent enough on safety? And you know, as a philosopher, I had never considered that question. It, it, you know, it had never been something that had come up in my classes, never occurred to me as an ordinary citizen. Um, and then when I started looking at this, what I found is that in the UK and the US is not so far uh, apart, although the numbers are different, is that we try to work out how many lives would be saved by some bit of safety, work out how much it costs. And if we can save a statistical life, at the time I was doing it, very convenient, for a million pounds or less, there was a duty to do it. And if it was going to cost more than a million pounds, uh, we didn't have a duty. Hmm. I think in the US at that time, the equivalent figure was something like $4 million. So an American life was worth much more than a British life. And in the yeah. Czech Republic, it was about $100,000 and so on. Wow. But anyway, each country had this own figure. So I thought, well, first of all, this is monstrous because you know, we're putting a price on life. And didn't I read in Kant that price, life has a dignity, not a price? So how can we <laughs> do that? And if we are putting a price, where do we get the number from? You know, where does that come from? And there were some experiments done. that there were, way, there were ways of doing this technical methodology for doing it. But this is completely infused with values. And so you know, our choice is, do we have these discussions about what are the values? Where do they come from? Have we got the right one? Have we got the right approach? Or do we just carry on doing what, what we've always done, or in this case, what we've done for 30 years without questioning it? And so you know, the interesting thing is that you start off being very skeptical. And as a philosopher, it's very, very easy to criticize. But one of the great things about public policy is that it's not enough just to criticize um, because you need a policy. And so to say that this policy or this approach is no good is the beginning of the discussion, not the end of it. You know, whereas in your philosophy seminar, you refute someone and you sit there with your arms folded and your turn. Um, in, in public policy, there's no such thing as refusing a view. Um, it's, everything's comparative. What can you do that's better than what we've got? And so you end up actually beginning as a severe critic and then realizing, actually, the options are very limited here. There's not that much we can do, unless you're very imaginative and come up with a wholly new approach. But then, unless it's very much better, people aren't going to shift completely in their methodology. And so, so mostly what you end up doing is finding good reasons for doing things that are not so dissimilar from what we actually do. Because ultimately, um, those moral decisions were taken 
either explicitly or implicitly by people with good moral intuitions, and there was a debate about it, not necessarily in the terms we would have as philosophers. And people have settled on things that can be justified. Not in every case. You know, there, there are plenty of cases where you know, we need to shift policy on moral grounds if we can. But it's just fascinating to see the interplay of values and um, how I think we can improve policy by being much more explicit about the values. Um, I think we can also improve philosophy by looking at these policy questions and realizing that we actually have to be much more practical if we're going to have any type of influence. Well, I've been very much enjoying this sort of meta thread throughout our discussion about political philosophy and its relation to other subjects and aspects of life. But I mean, this question of the price on life or the, is incredibly fascinating in its own right, but digging into it, uh, which I am very tempted to do, would take us quite far afield from this program we've been on. And so then going back to this uh, chronological treatment we've been following, uh, the next figure I have in mind is perhaps the hugest of them all, and one that I know you've done a lot of work on, and that's that's Marx. And mm -hmm. I should tell you as an aside that I'm particularly terrified of Marx in in an intellectual sense. I've never read anything of his, never studied anything, listened. And I was thinking about why that is as I was preparing for this conversation. And I think the answer is just that it's so daunting because he's so influential in so many ways. There are so many interpretations of his work. It's so misunderstood that it always, I guess it always just felt like I would need to take years of my life just to get my toes wet. And so granted what I've just been saying and that you've written at least one book on Marx and that a treatment of his work would require I mean, hundreds of episodes. Hmm. Uh, can we quite basically discuss his most important contributions to, to the, to the concept of government as we've been discussing it? Okay. Um, <laughs> So, so, that, so that is a challenge. Um, so, um, so I think Marx would not have wanted to join a conversation that began with Hobbes, Locke, and mm. Rousseau. I mean, maybe he's some more sympathetic to Rousseau aspects of Rousseau, um, but particularly Hobbes and Locke, he would have regarded them as bourgeois philosophers who were playing a role, pretty much to, to protect the status quo, and. Um, I suppose there are many different entry points into Marx, lots of different ways that you can think about it. But the concept of class struggle, I, I think, is is a very useful one. And you know, Marx had the view, um, he talks about this particularly in the Communist Manifesto, but all through his work, that society is, is um, increasingly falling into two classes, he argued, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Now, he was aware that this is not exhaustive. And um, there's also a landowner class, the aristocracy who own the land. The bourgeoisie are the people who own and run production, the factories. Um, and the proletariat are broadly the people who work for them. In the middle, of course, you, you would have people like teachers, us as academics. Uh, there'd be a type of middle class. Marx wasn't so interested in that. He's interested in the relation between labor and capital. And so the bourgeoisie are the people that own capital and use it for production. And you know, he 
studied capitalism. He, he was one of our great theorists of capitalism and popularized the idea, um, made the idea vivid that there, there's a point of production under capitalism is essentially to make profit. So capitalists are there. They make things, not because they want to make things, not because they want other people to have those things, but that's the way they're going to get money. So he contrasts ordinary exchange, where you might have something, I might have something, and we exchange services or exchange goods from capitalist exchange, whereby the capitalist starts with money, finds ways to invest, and ends up with more money in this sort of never-ending cycle. And in the early stages of his work, uh, he was very interested in the concept of alienation and that the effect that the capitalist system had on the worker. So if we think about capitalism in the mid-19th century, um, people working incredibly long hours, even children, young children in some cases were working 12 hours a day, five right. and a half days a week. So, so eight-year-olds were working 80-hour week. And the type of work they were doing um, was fatal to the health in some cases. So he has this example of children working in cotton mills whose job was to crawl through the ventilation shafts to keep them clean. But because the cotton fibers were there in the shafts, it penetrated their lungs and have a life expectancy of about three years. So you have these kids who were, well, you know, they should have been in infant school, primary school, but they were being sent to their death pretty much. But he, was this they, a racial I, thing? Sorry for I mean, cutting you Was this I'm a sorry. racial thing? Not in England. Um, so this was. Okay. Um, so the, 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 there were very few black workers to even talk about. So the, these were ordinary white northern proletariats in in uh, Manchester and well and and Liverpool too. But, but Manchester was where. Um, Marx's attention was primarily in the cotton mills. In fact, um, now you mention it, in Capital Volume 1, he talks about the effect of the Civil War, the American Civil War on the factories in Manchester because they're cotton mills and they were supplied by cotton coming from America. So during the Civil War, the cotton supply fell dramatically and a lot of the workers were out of work in, in Manchester in the north. And so the government in London was very worried about the plight of the workers and sent inspectors up to the factories to see what the um, effect was having, particularly on children. And they came back with very counterintuitive reports because they said actually the uh, the laying off of the factories was very good for children, for young children, and because they were finally being breastfed by their mothers, whereas beforehand the mothers would go back to work and would be unable to breastfeed them and would mm. feed them um, something called Godfrey's tincture to keep them quiet. Well, that was opium. And so the babies wow. would be taken back to the um, production line, swaddled in, in bandages or rags, and hung on, the butch on a butcher's hook. Through, I mean, not through their skin, but through, through the yeah. rags so yeah. the mothers could see them and be given this bottle with opium in to keep them quiet. So you know, when Marx says religion is the opium of the people, think of that. So it's um, given to the babies to keep them quiet while the mother's working. So when the mothers are not working, they could look after their babies properly and, they, and their health was better. So that, that was a long 
digression, but it was it, roughly the same sort of point. That in his early writing, Marx was talking more, more about alienation, which is about the misery of work, the psychological lack of fulfillment people have in their work under capitalism. On the production line, you're doing the same thing over and over again. And the young Marx was, was very keen to emphasize that human beings have this all-round potential, that we can you know, we, we have this incredible range of things that any one of us can do if we're given the opportunity. But under capitalism, most of us, at least at the time he was writing, don't have the opportunity to develop our talents and become brutalized almost like a machine at work. So the early Marx was, was very keen to emphasize alienation. The later Marx was more interested in exploitation rather than alienation. And this is the idea that the all the profit that the capitalists are making come from the exploitation of the worker. So he has this concept of surplus value, that what profit is is simply value extracted from the worker. And so on Marx's view, the only possible source of profit in the economy is the exploitation of labor. So there's no such thing as having fair capitalism. I mean, not that Marx used moral terms, but if capitalism exists, it requires extracting surplus from workers. So this is the Marxist analysis of the labor process. So where's the state in all of this? Um, well, for Marx, um, the state is acting on behalf of the bourgeoisie to keep laws in place that allow the capitalism system to continue in this exploitation. And so the cap so the state is not a neutral. So in, in Hobbes and Locke, we get this idea that the state is there for everyone. Marx says they're completely wrong. Um, the state is there for the interest of the ruling class, the, the bourgeoisie. And so the rest of us are kept in check by the state. If you're not part of the ruling class, um, you're, you're kept under uh, laws that will be beneficial, laws of property, laws around work, laws about not being able to unionize now, which we're seeing more and more coming back into anti-labor laws. So what happened after Marx's li lifetime is that you know, the laws became more and more favorable to workers. And so that made Marx's analysis look much less clear, much less compelling. But what I think we've seen in the last 10 to 15 years is a lot of safeguards for workers being stripped back. And so Marxists are saying, you know, the state is revealing its true colors now, that for some time it was looking as if it was more consensual, uh, acting in the interest of all of us, but um, it's really acting in the interest of the capitalist class. And if you look at income distribution figures and the supposed increased wealth of the 1% and the stagnation in real terms of the wages of everyone else, um, it, it actually makes a rather crude Marxism look more plausible than it might have done 20 or 30 years ago. Well, thank you for distilling what is a tremendous amount of work and scholarship into maybe five or eight minutes. Um, the The last figure that I think will lead us nicely into cities <clears throat> is John Rawls, because your work on cities is largely around this idea of equality and egalitarian, the egalitarian spirit. And John Rawls had an important did important work on on justice and equality. Do you see these as at all related? Is it is it worth talking about Rawls a bit? 
Well, it's always worth talking about rules. Um, okay, okay. And the connection between rules and um, my recent work is a bit more indirect in, in that okay. I, th I think sort of rules in political philosophy is the water we we swim in or the air we breathe now without always realizing what we're doing or, or seeing that explicit connection. Um, I mean, rules really revitalized political philosophy. I, th I think it, it's um, hard now to get into the mindset of the 1950s uh, when rules started writing. But what we have to remember is that there had just been the Second World War and it was instigated by the Nazis. The Nazis were German. And much of the great work in philosophy, we haven't mentioned them, but, but Hegel and Kant, uh, were Germans, and Kant uh, had written a book called, or a short book called Perpetual Peace. Um, we had this idea of enlightenment and liberalism and a tradition of political philosophy. And in a few short years, all of that was overturned, that the political philosophy had no restraining force in the rise of the Nazis. And, you know, the incredible atrocities that, that were seen. So coming out of that in the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s, there was a sense of desperation among some people in political philosophy, particularly people working in Europe, about, you know, what is the point of any of this? What can we do now that um, if the, those ideas had been, um, had any power, then they would have stopped what had happened, uh, but they didn't. At the same time, there was a rise of logical positivism, um, which tried to argue that um, values had to be reduced, or some versions of logical positivism, you know, values had to be reduced to mere emotions. And there was no objectivity around values. Um, very few people believed this, but they felt that positivism was a very strong challenge and that you had to be much more careful about talk when talking about values uh, and distinguishing them from emotions or preferences and people were struggling to say as we always have struggled to say what values are um, so you know what is the metaphysical status of values so this type of um, the impotence in real life of values the metaphysical attack on values uh, put political philosophy in a very bad position and so the uh, works I've looked at, particularly coming out of, of the UK, less so in the United States, um, was very despondent about the state of political philosophy. Um, the thought that there's not much we can do. We can analyze some concepts. Um, we can clear up a few confusions. We can do history of political philosophy. But putting forward some grand vision uh, seemed... Uh, really now is not the time to do that. Now, Rawls came along, um, also influenced by the war, but influenced in a completely different way. So instead of the war making him disillusioned in political philosophy, it made him resolute to think that he needed to produce a theory that could provide a stirring moral vision for people. And what he did was... Um, to provide not only a theory, but an argument for the theory. And 
even though we pretend in, in philosophy we have lots of arguments, we don't have many or not many that are very compelling. And that um, we often put forward a theory with relatively small arguments or uh, arguments against defences. What Rawls did was to come up with a methodology for thinking about political philosophy. And this is his device of the original position. And Rawls is a very simple idea, but he, he moves it in a very sophisticated way. So it's a modern um, revival of social contract theory. So to that degree, it is continuous with social contract theory, though um, Rawls thinks Hobbes isn't part of the same tradition as him. He talks about Locke, Rousseau, and Kant as people who have a type of moral social contract rather than the more material, instrumental contracts of, of Hobbes. But um, Rawls's idea is, well, it starts out from the fact that we disagree about matters of justice. Um, if we didn't disagree, we wouldn't have political philosophy. So we, we start with disagreements. So we might have a disagreement, for example, about you know, what is the optimum tax rate? So if you're wealthy, pro-capitalist, you might think minimal taxes you know, allow people to reap the benefits of their work. Maybe this is good for the economy, so we should reduce taxes to a minimum. Whereas if you have a, another view that you might think that taxes are needed to support people who can't work for themselves, infrastructure projects, savings, um, and some people also think high, high taxes will boost the economy, and there is some evidence for that too. So we have a disagreement about what type of taxes we should have. And it, part of it is an economic disagreement, but part of it is a moral disagreement about who should be helped or who should get resources. Should it just be people who produce more or should it be people maybe who can't produce more or take other types of decisions in their lives? So we've got this dispute. And so first off, it looks like a social contract methodology wouldn't be any help to solve that because if we put people with different views in a room and tell them to come up with a contract, they're not going to be able to agree. But Rawls says, um, well, maybe it's our personal biases, maybe also our values that make us disagree. And so if we were to discuss this situation without knowing what our role was in that situation, maybe we could come to an agreement. So, you know, there's an old fashioned idea in moral philosophy, political philosophy of always looking at things from the other person's point of view. And what Rawls does is take this to a very high level of abstraction. So what he says is, imagine you're designing the rules for your society, very high level, so just one or two small number of principles for the design of your, for what he calls the basic structure of your society. He's not talking about day-to-day -day interactions, but how would you like your society to be arranged? And imagine you're the person, you're the dictator um, who is coming up with this. But here's the rub. You don't know anything about yourself. So you don't know whether you're black or white. You don't know if you're rich or poor. You don't know if you're male or female. You don't know if you're talented. Um, this is called the veil of ignorance, the original position. How would you like to choose your society if you didn't know what role you'd be, you'd play in it, and you don't know what the probabilities are? So this is a really powerful thought. And at one point, Rawls says, um, no, Perhaps you, know, you could reason as if your enemy is going to be assigning you a place in the society, which I think is rather sweet because it assumes you've got an enemy and not all of us do, I hope, but maybe some of yeah. us do. Um, but anyway, it's a really powerful thought because you know, yeah. 
I mean, take it to the university. Suppose you have, you're in a university now. So universities are very inegalitarian um, institutions, unfortunately, despite the fact we claim to be so enlightened. So we have some people who earn an absolute fortune. Uh, we have many people who earn a very, very respectable living. But then we also have people who don't earn very much who are doing much more work in some cases like adjunct teachers we have graduate students who are doing a lot of work maybe they're getting something in return um is it fair or is it unfair well the thing to do to know would be if we could do it is take someone from each of these different levels in the university give them some sort of pill so they don't know which one they are and get them to um arrive at a salary structure for the university you know, would it be the one that they've got? Maybe it would be. You know, you know, maybe from an impartial point of view, we've got the just most just system. Yeah. Maybe we don't. But, yeah. <laughs> um, it's not. quite likely. Um, you know, if we were coming up with this, we wouldn't pay the football coach quite as much as we do in American universities. We wouldn't pay the president as much as we do. Um, we would probably pay adjuncts a lot more than we do. We might not not even have the role of an adjunct but we'll have, we'll have regular faculty and so on and so on. Um, so you might think if you were completely impartial, you'd come up with a different structure. So this is Rawls's view about how we design our society. And he thinks that the rational thing to do for our society would be to come up with, um, he sometimes calls them two principles, sometimes they're three. In fact, there are four principles, but um, the way he presents it first off, would come up with um, what's known as the basic liberties principle, which says everyone should have an extensive set of equal basic liberties. So we should all be able to have freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of movement, habeas corpus, uh, the ability, the freedom to stand for office. And so the typical liberal uh, rights, uh, we'd have the right to hold what he calls personal property, not necessarily extensive private property, that's for another principle. But we would all have an extensive set of equal basic liberties, which mean we wouldn't discriminate against anyone. And now that seems quite reasonable, because if you don't know who you're going to be, don't know the color of your skin or your religion, why would you choose to discriminate against any group? So we would all have equal basic liberties. Second principle divides into two. Um, half of it is a fair opportunity principle that says that we should not only have careers open for talents, but also the type of educational system that allows everyone to develop their talents. So quite a deep-rooted equality of opportunity. And then um, the second part of this is known as the difference principle. And this, for me, is the most distinctive part of Rawls's theory. And that says that we should design our economic institutions in society so that the worst off are as well off as possible. So we judge the justice by whether the worst off could be made better off than they are. Now you might think that means we divide everything equally. Um, Rawls says, well, it may be, maybe the best way of maximizing the position of the worst off is to give everything equally. More likely, um, things like market pricing, incentives, the needs of an economy, mean we should have some inequality. And then perhaps if we have some inequality, that will work to everyone's interest. 
So his thought is that if inequality is in everyone's interest, then we should allow that level of inequality, but no more. So the difference principle, as far as I know, is completely original to rules. Um, people had said before, inequalities are okay if they benefit everyone. But Rawls takes it further and says inequalities are only okay if they benefit the worst off as much as possible. They make the worst off as well off as possible. Now, there's a priority rule that says liberty is more important than economic matters. So it's much more important that people have their liberties than economic growth, than we have economic growth. So, for example, if someone said, okay, if some economists said, actually, we've got it wrong about slavery, the best way of running an economy was to have slaves. Um, from Rawls's point of view, well, that would be irrelevant because slavery is inconsistent with the basic liberties principle. And that goes before economic well-being. Mm -hmm. The only exception, and this is where the fourth principle comes in, which is actually the first principle, which <laughs> says if people are unable to meet their basic needs, we can suspend liberty under those circumstances. So if you're going to die, if you have your you know, if if we've got a choice between keeping people alive or restricting their liberties, we restrict their liberties. But we assume that's a temporary situation we overcome that but once we've reached a level of basic everyone's got their basic needs satisfied then liberty is much more important than economic matters and in economic matters opportunity is more important than difference principle so that's Rawls's um, theory of justice in a, in a nutshell so we've been talking a lot about the state so far and while city-states were once common, and I guess there are still some today, like Vatican City, though I'm not sure whether it should really be considered a city-state for our purposes, nowadays cities and states are not the same thing at all. So what is a city, and, and how do you define it? Because while we, while we all know what they are uh, and that we can point to one, experience mm -hmm. tells me that uh, providing a philosophical definition is going to be far less trivial than that. Yeah. Um, well, that that is a very good point. I think, um, from my own point of view, I'm um, with Nietzsche on the general idea of definitions, which is that um, any concept that has a history doesn't have a definition, because people will have used the same concept in different ways. And the idea that there's one single thing that you you can pick out as the criterion, I, I think, is is normally um, a myth. Um, so cities, we you know, partly you can define them by ostension, as we used to say in the philosophy of language, I think, that this is a city, that's a city, that's a city. So we know that New York is a city. We know that Seattle is a city. We know London is a city. Um, is Vatican City a city? Uh, probably not, actually, even if it's a, even if it's a state. Um, because one of the things we, we say about a city, well, first of all, typically they're more densely populated than the surrounding region though there are some exceptions to this um, they're large in scale they are broadly speaking where people can get everything they need within those yeah. environment yeah. environs so we're not very sophisticated on coming up with a new definition of a city but what we are interested in and so and so we take fairly conventional definitions that cities have municipal boundaries they have a typically a single authority they have a mayor uh, they, they have certain people who are paying taxes to that city. So we take a rather pragmatic view about it. But uh, the reason why we're interested in this 
is that um, political philosophers have tended not until very recently to talk much about the city. We've always thought of ourselves as, if anything, sort of consultants, if we think in practical terms at all, consultants to the central government. So we, mm -hmm. you know, we want to tell the government how to have its tax policy or when it can declare war or you know, what it should do at that level. And these are obviously really important questions. But in terms of the experience of people in their day-to-day -day life, they have much more engagement with their city than they do with their country. And you know, of course, the, the country sets income tax rates. So every time you get your paycheck, you can blame the country, not the city. But it's the city that's responsible for picking up your garbage, for working out when cars can go down, which roads at what time, uh, what social services are like, where the libraries are, what the parks are like, what planning is, how your neighborhood is going to be. So all of these decisions um, are taken by very local authorities. And political philosophers have shown very, very little interest in these smaller levels. And yeah, I can understand why it's a bit boring, really, to be thinking about rubbish collection when you could be thinking about war and peace or mm. um, overall distributive justice. But you know, these are things that are important to everyone's lives. And even things like you know, whether you have to get out of bed at seven o'clock in the morning to move your car to the other side of the street, because that's street cleaning day on your side and so on. So these things are, they really go to the fabric of people's lives and have been ignored and not completely ignored. Um, so there is some very good work. So in the books of Iris Marion Young, for example, you know, she has chapters on the city. Uh, but there ha have been very few book-length works, if any, by philosophers on the just city. And so uh, with Avner de Shalit in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, we worked together on a book called Disadvantage about 15 years ago. Now we think of it as a recent book, but it's, uh, it's ancient history already. So um, this, this is our second collaborative project. And um, just to explain the motivation, I have to admit that it was Avner's idea to do this. And um, I still don't blame him for dragging me into it. I'm so rather thankful that, that we've done this. It's been a fascinating project. But it really came from an observation of his that um, when we think about egalitarian cities, or what makes a city feel more equal, in our phrase, what makes a city more like a city of equals? The question is, you know, you know, what is it about a city that makes a city feel like that? And the reason this is interesting is that he was prompted by looking at a list of American cities, and Berkeley came out in the top 10 of the most unequal American cities in terms of income distribution. So if you start from income distribution, income distribution is very disparate in Berkeley. Um, there are multi-millionaires, but also many people with very little income or wealth at all. So that looks like a very unequal city. But the paradox for us is that it's a city that egalitarians would typically like to live in, if they're choosing. So people who have the egalitarian spirit, whatever that is, want to live in Berkeley, even though it is very unequal. And if you think about a city that has equal income, what's it likely to be? Well, it's likely to be one where rich people live with other rich people or poor people live with other poor people. And so it's almost a paradox that um, the sorts of things that egalitarians will value, 
is likely to mean that the city itself is very unequal in the income and wealth of the people who live there. Hmm. So what is it um, that makes for an egalitarian city or a city of equals in our view? So I don't know if you want me to describe the project. We have a question you particularly would like to. Yeah, I had I had plenty of questions. It's just that, as you know, I I, I really misapprehended the time. But w one thing I was particularly curious about, uh, beyond just the research question that you've sketched out, is the major empirical component to the investigation. Mm -hmm. I mean, you conducted a lot of interviews in a number of cities. And I'm wondering what they consisted in and what it was you wanted to find out and what you did find out. Great. Okay, so it's an unusual project. In in our earlier work, we, we also used an interview methodology in the Disadvantage book. And, um, you know, we've had a long time to reflect on what we did there and whether we did things the right way and how we theorize it. Um, what we've done in this project is gone through a series of, of stages. So the first thing we did um, was just talk to each other about what we thought made for a city of equals. And so we, we had a number of pleasant days. Um, I went off to Israel where uh, Avner lives, and we went to the beach and walked up and down the beach far from the city, trying to work out what we felt a city of equals would be like, Yeah, influenced by the reading we, we've done. And we, and we came to a provisional view. But we thought, let's test it. Let's see what people who live in cities value in their cities. And so the idea was that um, we, we would interview or have interviewed people in different cities. Now, I'm not a great interviewer myself, so I didn't do any of this work myself. I'm the philosopher, not the social scientist. Avna is very good at interviewing, but we also got research assistants. Um, so we had interviews conducted in Rio de Janeiro, in Rotterdam, in Amsterdam, uh, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Hamburg, Berlin, uh, London, and Oxford, uh, maybe some places I'm missing out, and New York as well. So we, we had interviews, not throughout the world, but in, in a range of cities, Europe and the Americas. We, we didn't go beyond the Americas, but North and South America. And what we were interested in is what people like about their city and what they don't like about it, what they'd miss if they moved away, what they wouldn't miss. Also, whether they thought their city was uh, an egalitarian city, was, was one that felt equal. And what was it about the city that made it feel equal or unequal? Um, we also asked them what they would do if they were mayor for the day as a type of utopian uh, planning as well, as a way of getting them to think uh, what they would value and how they like to see things done differently. And just uh, you know, one of the most interesting things, giving part of the book away here, is that um, in one of the German cities, two women were interviewed together, and they were asked, you know, what would they do if they were mayor for the day? And one of them said, well, you know, we need a lot more daycare in this city. And the other one said, not just daycare, what about night care as well? Um, and I thought, well, this is really interesting. I've never heard this proposal that there should be such a thing as night care. But of course, a lot of people work nights. Um, and it had never really occurred to me, what does a nurse do with her kids if she's on a night shift? Now, maybe she's in a partnership and her partner, or if it's a male nurse, um, of course, can also have kids if they're in partnership 
then that makes things a bit easier. But can you be a single parent on a night shift? What would that be like? What would your life have to be like? Would you have to have huge family support around you? What can you do? So this restricts people's opportunities quite a lot. I thought, well, night care, yeah, that's a really innovative idea. Has it been tried? I think we saw, we found something which we couldn't verify that had been tried in Sweden once in one small city, which maybe has, maybe hasn't. But so we thought, okay, this is the sort of thing we wouldn't have come across just thinking ourselves. So the point, so what was the point of the interview? Interviews. It was not to do a statistically significant survey. That was not the point that we just stop people in the street to talk to them. We tried different times of day, different bits of the city, but, the, but we didn't have a sort of grid to say you need five people like that, three like that. So, so it wasn't a statistical survey. Um, the interviews were really conversations and to ask people their feelings about the city, what they liked, what they didn't like, if they'd experienced discrimination, are they free to walk in other parts of the city? Uh, what do they feel about people living people of different cultures living together do they want to live mostly with people like themselves in some cases or with others you know what are their ideals and so really what we wanted to do was just to talk to people in order to enrich our understanding so it was to push things further it was to hear voices we wouldn't have heard to get ideas we wouldn't have heard um to get better examples of things that we maybe already had thought of um we also wanted to be challenged. So we wanted people maybe to say things that we hadn't expected. Um, and we um, wanted really just to enhance and enrich our view. So it was no different to having a conversation with other philosophers or conversations in the pub with friends or reading a book. It was just one more source of information. But it did give us more insight. So uh, another one of the interviews we go back to a lot I don't know, we asked someone in Berlin um, if she thought it, there were places that would be uncomfortable for her to go to or in Berlin, is everyone welcome everywhere? And she said, well, she she's a rather conservative person and she dresses in a n not a very stylish way. So she feels very uncomfortable going to the bohemian, trendy, hipster parts of town. Now, this was not the sort of exclusion we were thinking about. And mm -hmm. yeah, if you think about those people in that part of town, they would be devastated, I think, to think they're somehow exclusive because they would think they were the yeah. most switched on people. But of course, they're not in a way because they're quite snobbish about how switched on everyone else has to look. Yeah. So thinking about these ways in which informal patterns of exclusion work, it's quite interesting. And we got very interesting examples. So um, what we... What we have come up with, and I'll just do this very quickly, the overall view is that um, the key thing that makes people feel they're living in a city of equals is the degree to which everyone has what we call a secure sense of place, that, um, that you are proud of the city and you think the city is proud of people like you, that it doesn't want to get rid of you, it doesn't look down on you, it doesn't treat you as a stranger, or hostile or interloper. It, you, know, you are part of the city's story. So how does that cash out in more detail? So we thought there were four basic headings. We call them core values. The terminology is not perfect, but we call these core values. So the first one is um, non-market supply of goods and services. That is, 
in your city, there are ways of having a good life, even if you're not wealthy. So remember that we, we said a city of equals may well have people of very different income bands. But if there's good free healthcare, um, if there's good schooling, if there are free concerts in the park, if there's if you're on the beach, free access to the beach and so on, cheap subsidized sports facilities, um, you can get a cheap ticket for the theater if you queue for a couple of hours once you know, a week and so on. There are free days in the museums if that's what you want to do. The idea that you can do the things other people are doing, even if you don't have very much money, is part of the notion of a type of inclusive city of equals. So that's the first thing, non-market or supply of goods and services and resources isn't fully determined by the market, isn't constituted by the market. Secondly, um, uh, this idea of a sense of a meaningful life. So the things that you wanted to do, to do, you can do in your city. So whatever your religion, there's somewhere you can pray, uh, whatever your interests, there are things you can do and relatively convenient for you. So you, and um, transport actually is going to be quite an important thing here for you to be able to get to the places to do the things you want to be able to do. Thirdly, um, diversity and social mixing. So in the interviews, it was very interesting that people love the idea of their cities being what we call a city of many flavors. That an egalitarian city has lots of different aspects to it. You can visit, you can enjoy the cuisine, or you can just stay at home and be pleased. It's like that. Um, and that's part of what makes a city. So the diversity, interestingly, is what makes it equal rather than sameness. Um, and then finally, uh, something we call non-deferential inclusion, which takes a bit more explaining. But this is the idea that when you get things um, that you're entitled to, you're not meant to feel that you're a type of second-class citizen getting them. So, for example, um, if you're entitled to a welfare benefit, when you go to collect it, the person behind the desk doesn't make you feel you're getting some sort of special privilege from it, that we're giving it to you grudgingly or through some sort of gatekeeper, that you're not, you don't have to go through more bureaucratic hurdles than others. So you're, you're made to feel that you're included on the same terms of, as others. So the idea is that um, the city might recognize everyone's rights, but people's rights are scaffolded by a whole series of other needs. And sometimes you can be sensitive to people's particular needs and sometimes not. And so a city of equals is one that not only allows people to enjoy their rights, but to enjoy their rights in a way in which they feel they have them by entitlements and with respect. So one example of this, um, someone in Israel talked about a soup kitchen where you know, poor people went to uh, be fed, but it's set up like a restaurant with people sitting at tables with proper cutlery and you're served by waiters. And it's the custom to give the waiters a tiny tip as part of the, um, part of the system so in a way you're you're made to feel like you're in a restaurant like anyone rather than you're receiving charity from a soup kitchen so mm -hmm. those, those sorts of measures that they go to make people feel that um you know, you're, you're part of the story so you know there's increasing use of food banks um around the world we're seeing this in the uk you know food banks can be a place where you wait outside and you're given a parcel or you could be invited in and they have a chat with you, serve you a cup of tea, talk about your kids and so on. And so you're treated like a human being for half an hour before you leave. So these different ways in which you can, 
you can be given your entitlement. So we think that the city of equals is one in which gives people a secure sense of place. And we think these four values, um, goods and service, supply of goods and services is not constituted by the market. Sense of a meaningful life, diversity and social mixing and non-deferential inclusion are in, in this view, in, in what makes a city a city of equals. It's informed by the interviews, um, but it's not determined by them. So it's not that we said we're going to find out what the people think. We're, we're testing what we think with the interviews we did. And we got confirmation and enrichment and some small changes. But on, on the whole, people feel comfortable. And one of the great things, and we, we've given this work now at a number of seminars and conferences. And I think people come away thinking, that's the city I want to live in, the one that they just described. So we feel we're onto something here. But until the book is published and people can react to it, we we won't know. We don't think this is a final word. Um, it is one of the first books on the city written by philosophers, bizarrely, after thousands of years. Yeah, it's um, very surprising. Um, and so, you know, there are going to be, you know, there's, there's more work coming out. We're not the only group working on it. There's a whole philosophy in the city group now that have conferences every year. It, it's a growing area. There'll be many other books. And there have been some. I, I, I wouldn't say there've been none, but there, there've probably been half a dozen. But it's a it's an early intervention, and no doubt um, others will see things in a different way. We'd be very interested to keep that conversation going. Mm-hmm. Well, Jonathan, I'm very sorry that due to my poor time management, we couldn't talk more about City of Equals. But this has been just an awesome introduction to cities, uh, states and political philosophy in general. So thanks so much for talking with me. It's my pleasure. I'm now looking at the clock and the time has really flown by. And must be <laughs> my fault for just talking and talking and talking. No, 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 it was great. So thanks again. And my pleasure. Thank you. Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so. Bye.